Vital Educators podcast is hosted by self-development coach, investor, and renowned educator, Ahmed Saqib. Ahmed will speak to fellow educators, young professionals, ordinary people like you and me about their life choices that allowed them to become successful in their careers. He will also delve deeper into the psychology and their perception of success, the good, bad, and the ugly. For young students, he will discuss techniques to help you with your learning and development. Ahmed is committed to helping you determine what you want to do in life. He will share his own life experiences of self-discovery and self-realization that has led him to launch this venture. So this podcast is for anyone who wants to know more about various paths to becoming successful in any profession or passion. Hi guys, it's Armand here from Vital Educators. So in this episode, I sit down with Bilal, who is an engineer, and we discuss his professional life as an engineer and his career plans for his future. This is the second part of the episode. In the first part, we talked about how his early life and his early education experiences in the UK, especially his inability to speak English properly, and how he managed to turn that around to rank first at university for his degree. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's a fantastic episode and definitely encourage you to check that out as it kind of contextualizes the content of this episode as well. Um, I would also request that you kindly give me a review on wherever you're listening to this because it will help me grow this channel to help others on a larger scale. All right. Thank you so much. So let's get into the episode. How did you end up finding out about this Quest scholarship? Like how, how did this how did you come across? So I I think I just found out about it because I was just doing some, um, actually that is a good, ah, no, I remember now where I found out about it. I was, when I was going to my open days Mm. um, at university, uh, at sixth form, when I was going to university open days, Mm. um, at one of the visit days, it was either at Manchester University or at Birmingham, I forget which one they were handing out leaflets Mm. um, from the Institution of Civil Engineers. This was the department. Mm. Um, And in this leaflet, it was like, this is what civil engineering is all about, undergraduate experience. And then in that leaflet, there was find out more about the Quest Scholarship. So, yeah, that's where I found out about it. I just went home and Googled it. And wow. yeah, I just I was like, okay, this is a good thing to apply Googling for. Googling one thing can literally change your yeah. whole life. Wow. It, it actually, it actually can. I'm surprised. I must say, I don't know when my time of Googling will come, <laughs> but I, I must admire yours. I, I wow. Okay, so um, so you you did this, and uh, which company did you work for? Uh, Balfour BT. Oh, okay. Oh, of course, yeah. that's a massive company. Of course. Yeah. Um, so you work for Balfour BT. Uh, so what was it? that you decided not to go towards Balfour BT after you finished your engineering degree? Why didn't you continue with them? So I I came to my final year and um, this is the period where people are sort of beginning to apply for graduate jobs. And um, I had a standing offer from Balfour BT to join um, their graduate scheme. I was apprehensive because the construction sector at the time in the UK was going through a a bit of a retraction. Um, there weren't that many exciting projects. How the projects. hell did you know that at the age of twenty-two? I, so Jesus I was. Christ. I had. Uh, this is obviously three month, three summers of working in the industry. Ah, talk why. to people. That makes sense. <coughs> and I was also. Um, uh, I had subscribed to the Institution of Civil Engineers magazine, which would come once a month, and I would have a read through, find out what's going on. So um, it was a combination of that. Um, some of the folks that I had worked with at Balfour BT had moved on, um, so I didn't I had didn't have that network anymore. And then the third thing was I knew uh, that I wanted to work on an international scale, um, um, and which Balfour BT wasn't offering at the time. So they they were UK projects only. Um, I knew I wanted to work on an international scale, and I knew I wanted to do something still in engineering but more focused around project management because that's what I had enjoyed in my internships and what I'd enjoyed at university so um, yeah it was a combination of those things that um, kind of led me to deciding not to join Balfour BT and um, I again I had this experience in fourth year of okay what what do I do now so 
um, and, and I was just going to the careers fairs at university doing lots of research online and I came across um, the graduate program that BP were offering at the time which was a project management and project engineering graduate program and again it was just a Google uh, spoke to um, the, the team who came to the careers uh, fair at the university and again this is something I highly recommend people to do is, is go to those careers fairs um, so yeah I had a chat um, with one of those guys looked at the uh, looked at the website um, and I was like yeah this this sounds really interesting oil projects on an international scale get to travel abroad um, project management let's let's do it let's apply for it I had no idea what the oil and gas industry did in practice in engineering because none of my engineering degree had any petroleum or oil and gas engineering in it um, but yeah it was engineering in principle uh, so yeah I, I, that was <laughs> that was literally the only graduate scheme I applied for I didn't apply for anything else I was like this is the one I want to do and in in October of my final year, so just a month into starting it, I applied for it. And then when did you when did you get it? When did you get it? So by Christmas, I had an offer. Dude, how it's a lengthy have, process. How do you have such incredible <coughs> confidence in your abilities? Is beyond me at that age. I mean, it was a sense. So to be honest, it was it was a, a mixture of confidence and the fact that I applied very early. So. Um, I was able to get through the recruitment process quite quickly and then the, the third thing was I knew I had the backup option of going to Balfabiti if mm. everything else failed so yeah I love it but I yeah it, it was still a bit of a bold move to yeah, I must say, for I must one say, thing I mean in, in every aspect I think you, uh, um, one thing I've learned from you is that you are highly prepared um, you're you're you're, you're I don't know why, and maybe I think it's inherent because I've known you for a, for a, for a long while. When it comes to career, when it comes to progression, when it comes to anything that would move you forward, mm. you're always very aware. Mm. Okay, you're you're aware of what's out there. You want to know more. You want to grow yourself as much as possible. And you and I have this sort of conversations all the time yeah. as to how you can consistently improve yourself. Mm -hmm. So the next question is that I have for you is that you you got into the BP, you got into BP, you mm -hmm. got into your project management mm -hmm. and uh, project as a project engineer yeah. essentially. Um, You've worked there for four years now. Uh, right? No, it's almost almost. Five and a half years. Five and a half, yeah. Jesus, yeah, yeah. wow. Five and Long a half time. years, indeed. Clearly, it's been five and a half years, so you must love your job. So talk to me about that. So what do you, what do, you do now? So um, broadly, my experience was split. So first three and a half years, I was a project engineer. I uh, My entire career with BP has been in the Global Projects Organization, so uh, GPO. What, what we do is um, we build... Uh, take responsibility for building all of BP's major projects um, nice. around the world in, in the upstream. So that's projects where we've found oil or gas and we need to uh, find a way of bringing that oil and gas out from the ground and producing it to a market. Um, so building all the facilities that are needed to do that. So the first three years was um, working primarily on projects in um, in the Azerbaijan region. Uh, BP has a big presence in Azerbaijan and uh, the, the sort of uh, very quickly the flagship project that I worked my way up to was um, a project called Shahdaniz 2. So it's a giant gas field under the Caspian Sea of Azerbaijan and uh, BP uh, we were building um, uh, sort of massive offshore facilities uh, and, a, and a pipeline from Azerbaijan, Georgia, Turkey, Greece and into Italy to bring that gas from from Azerbaijan to those markets wow. uh, along the way. So Turkey being a big market and Europe being a How big market. How long does a project take like that take to it's, it's mega. It's, it's a mega project. So the, um, the execution period where things were being built, I think um, I must have been around five years for this project and parts to be honest parts of the project are still being executed oh, no as we way. speak because wow. it's it's a long yeah. phase project and uh, looking back through some of the project documentation I think the first concept of the project was drawn up sometime in the 90s so no these, these 
project are, are big ones. And I mean, when you think, so it was the, I think it was around $30 billion of capital that was spent on this project. So it's not a decision that any company takes lightly to spend that much money. So the question becomes like, how do they, again, I, I, I don't want to get into the politics, the, the, the nation itself, yeah. uh, that they have oil fields that they would like the mm-hmm. BP would like um, to 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 work on essentially. Yeah. How, how how does this how does that work? So th- there's a fairly well established structure around how revenues from oil or gas production are shared with the host country. So there's um, uh, two structures: either a production sharing agreement or a tax and royalty scheme. Nice. Uh, and what that means is the the sovereign nation. Uh, where the oil and gas is pr- produced, for the most part, receives the largest chunk of revenues from production. So, um, what what a company like BP is bringing to um, to one of these countries is the capability to develop something technically which a country like Azerbaijan does not have or did not have at that time. So, we we're bringing our ability to do deep water offshore gas projects technically mm. uh, the commercial ability to market that gas and sell the gas um that that's what we're bringing to a, to a country like Azerbaijan and and these are long term partnerships that are built through a you know they require a strong culture of uh, strong sort of respect and 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 understanding and it requires also a lot of investment in the country so bp has invested a lot in azerbaijan um the company's invested a lot in building capability for uh, of the local population as well to it's the a lot extent of uh, yeah it is a big risk um the, there's a lot of risk involved in the whole execution and you know the the amount of risk management and risk assessment that goes into a project like this is is it has to be quite quite phenomenal wow and presumably you didn't work on that side you actually worked mostly on designing so side. so i i was working on i worked my way up to managing a um a, approximately 175 million dollar package of equipment <coughs> that excuse me was being built in um in norway nice um so norway was um so has norway a lot of, was first before azerbaijan no or, so okay. so the equipment um it, it's it's some it's some complex subsea equipment that sits on the seabed and um this equipment was uh, contracted out to be built for us by a company in in Norway. So it would be built in Norway, um, and a lot of specialist subsea equipment companies are in Norway uh, and around various countries in Europe. And then from Norway, it would be shipped to Azerbaijan to be installed offshore. Nice. Um, so yeah, I I was managing a uh, uh, there were a small team of BP people, and we were based at the offices of the contractor in in Norway. Norway. And um, yeah, it involved spending a lot of time working with um, uh, with the Norwegian company, uh, ensuring that the engineering and design of the equipment was being completed on time and that it was being approved by um, the right experts within BP. And then um, a lot of uh, schedule control, cost control, making sure that everything was happening on time, on budget and a lot of logistics management so ensuring that all of the required components were getting to the sites on time um the testing of this equipment was complex the shipping of this equipment was complex you know one of the things that i did was that um th- there's a type of piping structure called a well jumper mm-hmm. which um which is usually built um in the country that it's installed in mm-hmm. and it's usually built on the on the quayside on the beach there and for the very first time in BP, we uh, we built these in not in the host country. So we built these fully in Norway, and we put them on a ship, and um, shipped them through a canal system, which is only open for three months in the That's summer true. because it's frozen the rest yeah, of the year, yeah. um, and got them into Azerbaijan. So yeah, I was looking after all of that logistics, making sure it was all happening on time. Um, and managing it all the way to getting it into country and getting it down on the seabed. Sounds like a very fun and exciting yeah, life. Yeah, it was really good fun. I remember whenever I always talk to you about Norway, I always get good good answers. As in, I always get a t- I always get you always smile. <laughs> you always so from my perspective, you lived in Norway for a year. Right? Uh, about two years. About two years, yeah. right? So 
Talk to me about that. Like, uh, what was it? This was the very first time you've actually moved away from home, ideally, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, what was what was that like? What was the how how did it even happen in the first place? Like, what made you want to go towards Norway and be like, okay, this is something that I definitely want to do with my life. So the opportunity came up probably around a, a year into working for BP, um, and I was based in London at the time, um, and they said, you know, we need uh, we need you to help with spending a bit more time with the team in Norway and yeah I said let's let's give it a shot wow that was it yeah. wow wow so uh, uh, presumably of course you weren't married at the time so you no. did not uh, consider um yeah it was a, it was a, it was a no-brainer for me oh, I was wow. I was willing and able as they say to travel <laughs> anywhere that the company wanted to go the only conditions I had was I had to be able to get to a gym. I had to <laughs> I had to be able to get some decent food and decent food in Norway? I'm surprised. Yeah, it was pretty good. Was it actually? Well, yeah. Norwegian food or just just a, a lot of seafood. Oh, it's a lot of yeah, seafood. Yeah, okay, fair yeah. enough, fair enough. Okay, good yeah. high protein, which is yeah. something that you definitely enjoy, yeah. I must say. Yeah. Uh, wow. So this is so so for you Norway was obviously a no-brainer at the start, but when you decided to come back, it was an experience that you will always cherish. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I I I think um, you know, it might sound a bit cheesy, but I do think I left a l- little bit of <laughs> in the country. I, I had wow, some you're Pakistani Norwegian, I, I had British some Pakistani Norwegian incredible experiences there. I, um, um, yeah, it was just you know being able to live in a country you that there a lot. yeah, I, I, I learned learned how to ski. I learned how to do cross country skiing. Um, to this day, I remain the only brown guy I've I've oh, personally really? seen skiing. Although I do know other <laughs> Asians who, who do ski. You and um, I had this chat. We don't ski anymore. No. Cricket is the only thing that yeah, we know. E- exactly. So yeah, it was just a lot of incredible experiences that you know I wouldn't have had access to had I been living in the UK. Wow, wow, I'm fascinating to say the least. And then you then after that you decided. So did that pro- project actually finish? So did they make the equipment? And so so the project it? is, uh, to put it in simple terms, it, it's it's sort of like five phases. Okay. Um, and I, I saw out the first phase. So I, I saw it all the way through to, um, I spent some time in Azerbaijan. I was offshore on the ship when the first um, of my equipment that I had managed was installed onto the seabed um, and tested. And Did you design the equipment as well? No, so the design was the responsibility of the contractor who was oh, working okay. for us, the, the company. Um, but I had very close involvement in some of the design decisions um, of, over the time that I was responsible for the scope. And yeah, so I saw it all the way through to the end of the first phase, so what we call first gas. Um, so production started, and that was around, I think, the end of 2017. Nice. And yeah, I moved. I came back to London, um, and I sort of I could have continued because there was a lot more work, um, but at the time it was going to be sort of repeating the same equipment. So it was more. It was moving into a repeat order phase. So mm-hmm. you've done the first phase. Now you need to kind of repeat this for the second phase, third phase. So I wanted to do something a little bit different. I, I I thought you know it was someone else could take that that opportunity as a new challenge, and um, I fancied coming and doing something a bit different in in back in London. So when did you come back in twenty seventeen? Yeah, and end of twenty seventeen I think okay. was my. And then what was the next project that you got yourself into? So I um I then applied for internally and moved to a new role in the company in. Uh, what's called the global concept development team and that's the role that i still do now as a development engineer so this was moving from the execute side all the way to the very front end of new projects so working with um, the exploration and business development teams in bp um, to look at new projects and new ventures where we could uh, where we could develop potentials potentials yeah nice so do you find that aspect a lot more interactive a lot more fun a lot more engaging versus what you did in uh, um, or, or basically looking after versus finding new opportunities that's what you're doing if, mm. if I was to boil this down for somebody who's a layman who's listening to this you were managing something that was already there now you're looking at something that could be something essentially yeah you know? and I, I think I think the way to um, sum up the two roles is in the first one I was 
um, realizing value. Mm. So I, you know, the, there off was value of value of the project. Oh, so okay. I was helping to realize the value of the project okay. by managing the the work that I was managing. In this second role, I am creating value. Hmm. Um, you know, by the time a project is sanctioned, there's not many opportunities to create value. Hmm. The va- the project has a value already, and then it, your responsibility is to deliver that value. Make, make sure sense. you manage all the risks and, and make sure it's delivered. At the very front end, you're creating the value. You have all the opportunities to look at all the different value levers, all the different routes to market, the costs, the risks. Um, and you're creating value. It's very so hypothetical, though, isn't it? It, it is, and, and that, that is something that I really struggled with at the start. Mm-hmm. So coming from the uh, a role where I was worried about costs down to the to to the to the dollar, I was worried about um, the fit Why of equipment, you? literally down to the millimeter. Um, you know, this is how precise some of this equipment had to be. Had um, to be, or you were like that? No, no, it had to be precise. Wow. It had to be this precise okay. uh, to fit. You yeah. Know. Um, coming from that to a space where it's very open, very, <laughs> um, very sort of unstructured almost. Uh, you know, there is a structure, but it's not as structured as when you're executing something. Makes sense. And it's very, very much sort of, you know, we potentially know there could be something there. We don't know how big the oil field is or gas field is. Can we make it work? How much would it cost? What are the economics? Um, what would it take? Those types of um, those types of really open-ended questions. A lot of ambiguity, a lot of uncertainty, um, and a lot of... Uh, a lot of space to basically you, you, where you have to really think through things yourself mm. uh, and and collaboratively as well. This is a very good way of um, this is a great way to to go into business eventually as well because when you're looking at a project so because mm-hmm. right now as you already know I, I have businesses myself so when you're looking at a project you have to kind of hypothetically presume things mm-hmm. and and then then and then kind of come up with an idea whether this project is viable or not you kind of doing the same thing my, my question would be presumably yours will involve a lot more thinking on a grand grander scale because you'll have people who are sitting above you who are looking at your hypothesis and, and questioning you on them absolutely yeah. that's that's happening yeah. consistently uh, totally so um you know we we work, um, so I work very closely with um, other functions in BP. Um, so I'm in the projects function. Um, we have exploration, we have business development, we have all sorts of, we have a drilling team, we have operations, we have environmental and social, which is a really critical and increasingly important aspect of what we do. Um, and all of those functions have to have to be integrated and form a viewpoint on a certain opportunity and that then has to be distilled and written up and presented to 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 management so um, i've prepared briefing notes and reports that have been uh, that i've personally presented myself to uh, vice presidents in the company all the way up to our chief operating officer where um, uh, you have to explain what the project is what the opportunity is what the risks are what the potential, um, you know, benefits are to the company in terms of um, value, uh, mm-hmm. the, the money we can make, and any other be- benefits, um, and yeah, so that and they look at these opportunities all over the world for the company, and they 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 then make that decision based on the insights and inputs that you provide to them. So let me ask you this: which, based on what you what I know about you and what kind of personality you have, mm. my perspective is that because you like the planning side of things, mm. because you like overseeing and seeing how a project is kind of coming to fruition, mm. I personally think, and you can correct me on this, you like the Norway role more than this role right now because this role is based on, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say it, I, 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 I definitely don't want to belittle your role, of mm. course, uh, is based on a lot of h- hypothetical scenarios, whereas yeah. that one was a lot more tactile and you know you had to do mm. a project. There was an A and there was a B. Yeah. Um, in this one, there is an A, definitely, yeah. but you don't know which way that A would yeah, end yeah, up yeah. in, essentially. That's right. So wh- wh- which one did you enjoy more? It's a very difficult question to answer. I think it would depend on which aspect of 
of things we were talking about. So if I think in terms of seeing tangible things happen, there's a big part of me that loves that, that thrives off, you know, seeing something being delivered. And um, from that point of view, yeah, definitely the Norway role was, was great. There is though the other part of me which really enjoys uncertainty, I, enjoys ambiguity and really thinking through a problem from first principles mm. and getting the opportunity to then present that to some very senior decision makers in the company, which isn't something I was doing in True. my Norway job. True. And 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 communicating something very uh, very succinctly. So mm -hmm. being able to distill the key messages and provide those insights, um, and and to have that level of responsibility where you need to look at the, what those insights are and communicate them to a very senior level in the company, that is very enjoyable as well. So mm -hmm. I think yeah, there's there's very the, both roles are very different. Mm -hmm. What I enjoyed in both roles are very different. Um, it's difficult. Challenging. Again, I think both have have their wow, own challenges, wow. and, and I, you should definitely be in politics. <laughs> okay, I love how different. So, so are about it's it's strange because there's there's generally few people in the company who are able to switch from execute to the front end mm. like this, mm. and and enjoy both as much as I've done. Mm. Um, you have a multifaceted personality. I, I, I do. Must say. I, I think I do. Yeah, I think you yeah. you 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 have a personality. You're a chameleon, basically, <laughs> you, which is true. I mean, yeah. the, I mean, we're talking about to, going into different cultures, traveling. Yeah. I think all of that adds up into the person you are today. It adds up to your personality, the way you talk, the way you behave, the way you, the outlook that you have in life, and how you translate that into your career, into your professional environment, mm. and that allows you to be. Um, a, a chameleon, essentially, which I basically said to you before. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think I'm able to find out, uh, find something I enjoy in everything that I do, mm. um, and and I, I guess to an extent that comes with a baseline of being really good at my job, which gives me the license to then be able to pick and choose mm. things that I want to focus on a little bit more. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I, th I think there's an element of um, just looking at you know what what is it that I can really enjoy in this role and and really excel at. Mm. So what you're saying is that I think you have this mentality uh, in any aspect of your life is what, whenever chips are down or whenever life is tough, you always have an idea. You always have a way to look at the good, even in that sort of sort of part of your life as well yeah i i am i am quite optimistic. quite an optimist okay um i How think did you become this way it wasn't Dude, it wasn't, come on. It wasn't it, that's inherent <laughs> it wow. wasn't deliberate um i think i'm, I'm just generally an optimist i it takes a lot to phase me um nice. i yeah I, I think my wife would say the same she she's she's probably a pessimist Oh, so, oh, so it's wow. an interesting. Let's hope she doesn't hear this. <laughs> it's an interest. Oh, she she'll happily tell you that she's a pessimist. Um, so it's she an interesting. Tell me, optimistically tell me <laughs> that she's a pessimist. Um, so it's an interesting combination that we both have. But yeah, I, I I'd like to think of myself as a, um, as a sort of sensible optimist. I'm not an exuberant. You're a realist. Uh, yeah, I'm a realist. I'm not. Uh, I'm not an exuberant optimist. Mm. Um, I'm a sort of realistic optimist, mm. um, but I am also very cynical in many many ways as well. I, so yeah, but you're cynical in, in in a good sense, not yeah. in, not in a bad. Yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm not like a jaded sort of old man who's like you know fed <laughs> up with life. everything. Uh, but I am cynical in that it takes a lot to convince me to believe something that sounds irrational like i have a big like i have a big bullshit filter oh, I love um that's good it's yeah, good. yeah if someone if someone comes up and tells me oh this is going on my first reaction is normally okay what are the facts let's uh, let, you, let's you let's that. go back to the facts we do we can talk about it but at bp as well yeah um if you uh, sort of call correctly you have you mentor a lot of the a lot of a lot of some people uh, where you, you, you kind of oversee what they're doing in their lives and you, you kind of... Oh, so, so yeah, them. yeah, I, I, I do have mentoring conversations with graduates uh, who have joined the company. I also um, uh, participate in uh, coaching 
um, through the Teach First program, new teachers um, who are participating in the Teach First program. So this is something that BP sponsors externally. Um, and and uh, through that, I um, take a role in coaching teachers, essentially. Nice. So obviously your, your aspect of I don't take any bullshit comes to fruition, essentially, mm-hmm. when people come to you and give you a lot of bullshit for why they did not do what they did. Yeah, I, I, I generally hold people to account. Um, if someone has promised to deliver something by a certain point, I will hold them to that. You know, I'm, I am gentle, but, f- uh, fair. B- but fair, mm-hmm. I think. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, because you and I had dealings of such kind. Yeah. Um, that Not sounds a bit dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, you've, you've mentored me in a way yeah. uh, for a brief period of time as well. So I would definitely vouch for that. I would definitely agree there mm. that you are, you, you know what you are. You're very sensible. You're very sensible. I mean, you can you can see when somebody's bullshitting you. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of this. And then you can maybe because you're my friend, you you can you can call me up on it very yeah, easily yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, because you can call me up on it. It kind of gives me a bit of a grounded reality as yeah. to whether it's really an excuse or is it not really an excuse. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. But I have no problem with calling up people who I'm not friends with as well. Um, it, but but I think I can. I, the the thing is, I can do it in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, all about articulating, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's and I can do it in a non-confrontational way. I I think I'm I'm very. Uh, I I take great pride in saying this that most of my career I've been able to achieve really good results in teamwork and collaborative situations without ever needing to be confrontational. Do you know why people. that is? You know why, how you do that? Questioning. You ask the questions yeah, over and yeah. over again. Yeah. When you ask loads of questions, mm. you make the other guy think. So why do you think you did that? Why do you think you yeah, did that? Yeah, yeah. So why did why do you think that was the case? Yeah. So I think that is the way you kind of step towards the end. And, and believe it or not, I do the same thing. Mm. And that's why I was, I'd say, relatively successful when I was in my business development role at uh, the pharmaceutical company that I was working with yeah. that I don't work for anymore. Yeah. Um, so this um, this has been absolutely fascinating. The question that I have for you, moving forward, what are your plans? What Where do you where do you see yourself going after this? Because you've, you've lived a very fulfilled, fulfilling life. You have not left any page unturned. Whatever comes to you, you've taken it, you've grasped it, and you've lived it to your fullest. And believe it or not, even a guy like me who goes pedal to the metal and everything as well, <laughs> I admire what you've done. And uh, and you are something that I definitely aspire to be. So what is next for Bilal, I think? I, th- the one thing I know is I want to continue pushing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I... Uh, I will always continue to look for new challenges to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I'm I'm considering uh, looking at various different options in terms of pushing for um, more uh, more commercial direction mm-hmm. in in what I do in BP. So perhaps um, a role that has more business development mm-hmm. mixed into it, or a role that is more focused on um, uh, trade, uh, trading, for example. So, the, so what's this trading aspect of BP? Could you explain this to the audience, please? So trading, the integrated supply and trading team in BP, um, essentially to boil it down, buy and sell all of the products. So they, they sell uh, the products that BP produces, the oil and gas that BP produces. Mm-hmm. And to, they, onto what? Onto, onto the open market, long-term contracts. And they also buy um, crude products that BP's refineries need um, at a very simple level to, nice. to distill it down. Nice. So, so, so you want to get involved in that aspect now, moving from yeah, the. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I want to get involved in. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I, th- I think I want to broaden out into a more commercial role. That has to be within BP, or it could be any other company. Uh, at the moment, I'd, I think I'd prefer to focus on uh, on looking at opportunities in BP. The the company's just announced a very uh, interesting new direction um, around uh, reaching net zero emissions by twenty fifty, which I think is a, is a really good um, and actually quite a long overdue target for for the company. So I'm I'm enthused by the long term direction that BP's headed in. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't be averse to opportunities outside the, the company. I, I, I have a 
never say never type philosophy until Absolutely. until someone poses the question i i never preclude anything i love it i love it uh, with regards to uh, zero emissions by 2050 mm. if bp is basically mostly or 90 or 100% based on oil and gas how are they focusing on going zero emissions so the key caveat is net zero emissions okay so um Firstly, I would say, you know, the company's just announced uh, the targets um, and the, the longer term strategy of how those targets will be realized is is to be set out um, later this year. Um, the, the the key thing I think that the company's already starting to do is move towards, um, in the first instance, gas hmm. um, as a as a bigger mix in our production over oil. Um, so gas is lower carbon than oil mm -hmm. uh, it's it's also much more efficient in terms of cleaner burning um Fuel. cleaner generating uh, ability to generate cleaner electricity from it compared to coal um we're also spending more and more money in the renewable sector mm -hmm. um so bringing those technologies into bp and leveraging our own expertise that amount we spend is is a very small drop in the ocean at the moment in terms of our total capital so we need to do more and i think uh, we are going to be spending more money in that space the other thing that's um that's really crucial to achieving net zero emissions and and this is really important for i think people to understand there's a difference between zero emissions and net zero emissions and the difference is zero emissions is you're not emitting anything net zero is you're emitting you're still emitting co2 but you're able to offset that amount by doing other things so um planting you're either trees. offsetting by planting trees in in, in essence mm. which is you know to to deal with the the real catastrophic climate change uh, that we've potentially got would require <laughs> like huge levels of reforestation so um reforestation alone isn't isn't enough the other thing we've got to do a lot more of is um, look at fuel mixes like hydrogen, but also carbon capture and mm -hmm. storage. Mm -hmm. So I've recently started working on a on a project called Net Zero Teesside, which is going to be, um, you know, if it goes ahead and, and the chances are looking good, um, the UK's first um, large scale carbon capture and uh, storage uh, facilities. So, so explain to me what carbon capture is because I'm not actually familiar with the idea. So, so carbon capture is where um, you use a, um, a specific technology. Um, it, it's it's some usually uh, the, the proven methodology is using amine to capture CO2. Nice. Um, and and split that CO so so essentially you can have um, an industrial process that's emitting CO2 at the moment and you install this carbon capture technology um, uh, with that uh, industrial uh, plant and you capture that waste stream and you take that CO2 and then you take it offshore and you inject it into a depleted oil or gas field. Nice. So you're able to basically lock it away yep. um, into uh, into something that should provide, um, you know, over a very long period, a safe way of storing that CO2. Um, so this is this is something that BP is looking at very seriously. It's kind of like a catalytic converter, basically, because a catalytic converter is taking carbon monoxide and turning it into a carbon dioxide and then emitting it out. So what you're saying is that by reacting with with amine mm -hmm. uh you're kind of locking it in with amine and yeah. then just dumping it into the into the into the yeah so so the, the 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 cool thing with the the amine capture technology and i'm not an expert on it so i'm i'm just i'm probably oversimplifying it is that um the 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 way the process works is that you scrub the amine away mm. so you're able to recycle the amine solvent mm. while splitting the co2 interesting so once you've once you've captured the co2 the co2 combines with the amine mm -hmm. you then scrub the amine back off you then have a pure co2 stream which you take away for injection and then you recycle the amine bloody hell and presumably from speaking to you you don't have any involvement on the ground doing the actual labor work in any of the projects that no. you've taken part in no interesting i still uh, i for when i was a project engineer i was um, a lot of my time was spent on site, so in the construction yard or offshore, and that was you know literally wearing a hard hat, high vis, 
Because um, that's what, a, what whenever somebody says civil engineer, that's what yeah, the yeah, yeah. people get. Um, but I wasn't um, apart apart from I guess during my internships, I wasn't doing any of the manual labor work myself. It was it's more about oversight and um, management. Interesting. So now, what have what? Why have you decided that trading would be a good opportunity for you to or a good area for you to move into? Why why this? So again, not specifically just trading, but I think anything with a more um, so 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 what what this role um, working at the very front end of new projects has given me an appreciation of is uh, more of the commercial space, um, and I've realised I really enjoy that. I really enjoy the um, understanding what the numbers are doing in terms of how the cash is flowing in and out of mm. the company, mm. and um, understanding what the where the revenue is being generated and being able to optimize that mm. um and i've really enjoyed um in the concept development work that i've done finding the right ways to optimize and increase the um the value that we're generating from the concepts that i'm looking at um so i think i've enjoyed it so much that i want to do more of it I love it. Okay, fine. Uh, I hope you definitely get that success uh, coming to you, buddy. And I know that you will definitely do that, and you'll definitely be you'll 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 be even better at it. I think. Do you do you feel like your skills are improving as 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 and when you're moving forward in your role? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. five and a half years. A lot of people feel like a bit cluttered and a bit stuck in their rut. In essence. No, I I think I I'm still learning new things every single day do you know why that is because every single time you're changing you're within the company you're changing your roles mm. you're not doing the same role over and over again mm -hmm. and i think um and also i must commend you that you're patient enough to stay within one role and actually learn the ins and outs of that role good and well enough yeah not uh, not to an idea that you will stay in that role and continue doing that role you just want to learn it and move on and learn something else and then once you're perfected that you are the perfect employee i must say that's what you are honestly <laughs> i mean uh, you are on your way in my opinion to becoming a ceo of bp so hopefully when anybody hears this in, in about five, ten years time, and this guy's like <laughs> some sort of a big time... You're going to be a podcast celebrity by that point. No, really, I think you'll be a lot higher than me. I mean, you won't even talk to me by then. So, yeah, I mean, this, is, this has been a phenomenal, um, phenomenal interaction, and I really learned. But before I finish off, I know a lot of people would be wondering... As an engineer, how much do you earn? What's what do you start with? What do you end with? So, so it really depends on which sector you go into. Um, if you were to start off as a um, as a civil engineering graduate, I think the average starting salary is between twenty five to thirty k. Do you think that's enough for the job that they do? <laughs> that's a really subjective question we could we could have a whole separate debate on, on that, fine, on that. Fine. the reason so, I asked the question is because of course you've worked in that sort of environment as yeah. well so do you think that you were paid enough for the work that you were doing or do you not do you think so, you so, so one of the reasons I went to into oil and gas was obviously that the pay is slightly better nice. um, so the starting salary um, in BP I think at the moment for engineering graduates is between 35 to 40,000 mm -hmm. so um yeah, you know that definitely is is a big uh, appealing factor. Nice. Um, and does it increase year by year, or does it yeah, increase on annual r report, or what? What would what they look at? It, it increases depending on your progress through the graduate development program, and then thereafter you you're just you know you're pushing for your own promotions as as you progress. Oh really? Through okay. The is that what the is that what the space you're in right now? Where okay, fine. Yeah. Okay, it makes sense. So what does it go up to? Is the question what does it if you were to stay in the sector not as a ceo let's not talk about ceo because i know that yeah. they, they earn millions yeah i'm talking about as a general in a general sense if you were to become a project director or something what 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 are you looking at i think you're probably looking at comfortably upwards of 80 90 000. okay and how long would it take for somebody who's a project engineer to become a project director if on average i mean i mean if there, you, there's no set there's no average answer to this. It, all, it all depends on uh, depends on a mixture of your your capability, mm -hmm. the opportunities that are available to you, mm -hmm. um, how well networked you are, mm -hmm. um, and luck. Okay, so let me ask you this: in a corporate environment, what are the three key skills that you think anybody should definitely have in order to progress further? 
you should be able to communicate okay. very well. Mm-hmm. I knew you um, would say that. You need to be able to distill your message. You need to be able to pitch to people more senior than you. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be able to network. Okay. And network. you need to be able to network in a in a way that feels natural. Mm-hmm. So this isn't networking where you're just going around handing out your business cards. <laughs> this is really getting to know people um, and building networks, um, building connections that are long-term connections, not just because someone can help you get a new job. And then... It's not incentivized networking. Yeah, ex- okay. exactly. And then the third thing I think is really crucial is to understand the structure that you're operating in. Mm. Understand the reality of it. Understand mm. the economics of your job. Mm. And a lot of people will go to work and they will do what they're good at, and but they won't understand the fundamentals of, you know, what is it that's created the job that I'm in? Mm. What's the business need for my job? Mm. Um, I love it. And how do I move to the next level? If I want to, how do I get the promotion? Because I think there's the, uh, there's two dangers. If you don't understand that structural environment mm. of why your job exists and why the business need is there, um, you will you will struggle to get promoted. Mm. Um, you will also be susceptible to um, you know having your job phased out one day if it's automated or if you're made redundant. That was if, be my if you question. don't understand the structure, the business need for it. You won't see it coming when your job gets automated. You won't see it coming when your job gets made redundant because the business environment has changed. So you have to understand that. Mm. I think a lot of people who do get made redundant, it comes to them as a shock. Yeah. Oh my God, I was made redundant. And the question becomes to them, ideally, is to what, what, what was it that they were lacking? What is it that they did not understand at the time? And you have hit the nail on the yeah, head. They, they didn't understand, understand the, the economics of the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. So, so my question is, then somebody who's listening to you would also ask the question, do you not worry about your job becoming A, obsolete, and B, because we're, you're in an industry that's essentially on paper is a dying industry, so uh, on paper. So what do you not worry about losing your job, essentially? So two points to address. Automation. Um, I personally don't worry too much about automation. I think... <coughs> A high degree of the job that I have requires um, being able to draw insights, mm-hmm. um, connecting different dots, mm-hmm. um, connecting different functions, mm-hmm. and then communicating decisions um, or communicating those insights to people who need to make the decisions. And, and those aspects are very difficult to automate. Really? Um, I think if you design a robot that can look at history of the, of the land or whatever mm. and, and, and look at the records and then look at uh, the potentials of what could yeah. be in that land. Can you not draw like a graphs, different sort of graphs and do like a risk assessment all in, on a computer and produce a result within? It, it can, but it still requires, and, and we're doing a lot of automation in, and um, we're using a lot of uh, sort of programming in, in the work that we're doing at BP, but all of that is to free free us up to spend more time actually talking to people because a robot won't be able to sit in front of a government uh, minister from Senegal and tell them, you know, this is what it will take to develop the gas reserves that you have. A, gov- a robot won't be able to sit with a contractor and say, I need you to deliver this. Mm. Um, a robot won't be able to sit with the chief operating officer and explain to him or her that this is... This is the value proposition. This is the risks. Uh, this is the risk associated with it. You know, the, and and so I, I I personally I think as long as there's that high degree of human interaction and human insight, um, then um, and actually understanding what what the um, what the programmed things around you are doing, then you you shouldn't need to worry too much about your job being obsolete. Um, if you're doing lots of routine things, if you're doing things that are um, look the same on a daily basis, then you do need to worry about the robots coming your way at some point. <laughs> and then the second... Oil po- and gas going down. Oil and gas. Um, so again, I think the world needs a lot of energy for many, many, many years to come. And there is um, a whole host of the world's population that is moving into the middle class in Africa, India, China, 
um, all over the world that will require more and more energy as their lifestyle, as their quality of life increases. And the challenge for the world is how do we deliver that energy um, to these people? How do we deliver that increasing energy um, in a way that they can still continue to develop and improve their quality of life? Makes sense. Um, and, and that's really where companies like BP are, are going to be an essential part of the journey because we understand the energy climate, we understand the technology, and, and I think we, we need to play a role in, in delivering the solutions that are needed to, to meet the challenges of climate change. Um, and, and I think we need to, um, companies like BP need to be quicker in transforming ourselves to energy companies rather than oil and gas companies. Interesting. So, so one of the one of the things that um, I've definitely realized from you is that you have to be vigilant. You have to understand the different aspects of uh, of of your role mm. and how you are contributing within your company and how mm. your role was created within the company um, and how you're benefiting the business essentially. Um, once you've understood all of that, you are able to benefit the company a lot better. And you you kind of become invincible in a sense is what you're you're trying to say because you, once you understand why you exist within a company mm. you're not just a cog in a wheel essentially yeah uh, you're actually contributing and making a difference mm -hmm. uh, your job becomes exceptionally valuable mm -hmm. and once it becomes exceptionally valuable there is no risk to you in a sense that you're losing a job and that's a lot of the Asian mentality is that you have to become a doctor or a dentist because those or a teacher ideally because those jobs will always stay there but as an engineer the job for an engineer might not be there because it's a job that might just go down one day mm. okay so i think yeah you have to be you have to be willing to evolve nothing's ever invincible i say the same um thing. you you should always have a backup plan um, even if it's a half-baked backup plan, you should always have a backup plan for what you'll do if the if the thing that you do on a daily basis goes tits up. Um, but yeah, you, you but yeah, it just comes back to understanding the world structurally, the world around fascinating, you. Fascinating, fascinating. This has been an absolute pleasure. I love having you here. There's so many questions I still want to ask you. <laughs> There's so many nuggets of information that you can still give me and I can take so much away from you. But uh, just by talking to you like this and just by speaking to you in, in depth and trying to understand your perspective has allowed me to actually expand my horizons and understand your profession and the trials and tribulations that you've come up throughout your life and how you've survived and how not even survived you've thrived yeah. so if anything th th that i can take is pure admiration and pure um inspiration that you are for me and for a lot of people who are listening right now uh so i think thank you so much for coming and i really appreciate your contribution to the podcast um if again it's up to you but i would love to because i know you a lot better i think there's a lot more to you than what we've discussed today i think everything was still believe it or not was on the surface um yeah. i think there's so much more to you that we can talk about so i'd love to have you back whenever happy you have to come time. back thank you so much uh so yeah so that calls it thank you so much for coming it's been great thank Always you a pleasure if you're looking for somebody who uh, could be a coach and a mentor to you, just like Bilal is to uh, some of the people that he mentors, uh, go to vitaleducators.com. And uh, any questions that you have, just uh, drop me a text or drop me a question on the website and I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Thank you very much for listening. Take care. Bye. This was Vital Educators Podcast by Ahmed Saki. Hope you enjoyed. Please follow or subscribe for more content every week.